on page 213 in your pew Bibles. Joshua 7, verses 1 through 26. But the Israelites acted unfaithfully in regard to the devoted things. Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of them. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near beth to the east of Bethel, and told them, Go up and spy out the region. So the men went up and spied out Ai. When they returned to Joshua, they said, Not all the people will have to go up against Ai. Send two or three thousand men to take it, and do not worry all of the people, for only a few men are there. So about three thousand men went up, but they were routed by the men of Ai, who killed about thirty-six of them. They chased the Israelites from the city gate as far as the stone quarries and struck them down on the slopes. At this, the hearts of the people melted and became like water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord, remaining there till evening. The elders of Israel did the same and sprinkled dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Ah, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say now that Israel has been routed by its enemies? The Canaanites and the other people of the country will hear about this, and they will surround us and wipe out our name from the earth. What then will you do for your own great name? The Lord said to Joshua, Stand up! What are you doing down on your face? Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things they have stolen, they have lied, they have put them with their own possessions. That is why the Israelites cannot stand up against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they have made, they have been made liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you, whatever among you is devoted to destruction. Go, consecrate the people. Tell them, consecrate, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. That which is devoted is among you, O Israel. You cannot stand against your enemies until you remove it. In the morning, present yourselves tribe by tribe. The tribe that the Lord takes shall come forward clan by clan. The clan that the Lord takes shall come forward family by family. And the family that the Lord takes shall come forward man by man. He who is caught with the devoted things shall be destroyed by fire, along with all that belongs to him. He has violated the covenant of the Lord and has done a disgraceful thing in Israel. Early the next morning, Joshua had Israel come forward by tribes, and Judah was taken. The clans of Judah came forward, and he took the Zerahites. He had the clan of the Zerahites come forward by families, and Zimri was taken. Joshua had his family come forward man by man, and Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, and the tribe of Judah was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and give him the praise. Tell me what you have done. Do not hide it from me. Achan replied, It is true. I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I have done. 
When I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them. They are hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent and there it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. They took the things from the tent, brought them to Joshua and all the Israelites and spread them out before the Lord. Then Joshua, together with all Israel, took Achan, son of Zerah, the silver, the robe, the gold wedge, his sons and daughters, his cattle, donkeys and sheep, his tent, and all that he had to the valley of Ankor. Joshua said, Why have you brought this trouble on us? The Lord will bring trouble on you today. Then all Israel stoned him, and after they had stoned the rest, they burned them. Over Achan they heaped up a large pile of rocks, which remains to this day. Then the Lord turned his, from his fierce anger. Therefore, that place has been called the Valley of Akor ever since. May God bless the reading of his word. Morning, everyone. I hope, I trust that you got a sense when Jason was reading the uh, scripture passage this morning that this is a more I guess you could say like solemn, somber passage. Um, for those of you here who maybe had a really long week and were hoping for a more positive, uplifting message, uh, I'm not going to be able to help you out too much today because the text is not going to let me. Uh, more so than, you know, you, as you look outside the nice sunny day it is today, maybe this text is more appropriate for days when the clouds are dark and ominous and thunders, you know, roaring and rain is pouring. Um, it's, it's a pretty serious text, and I think uh, in reading it, as you heard it being read, it's going to, uh, well, although on one hand it's not difficult to understand the story or what takes place, it does raise some questions in our minds, and I'll try to address uh, some of these today. Um, I think overall, though, what uh, Joshua 7 presents to us is a lesson about how seriously God views and treats sin, and so we should treat it. Uh, very seriously as well. And to kind of just to catch us up uh, to uh, a bit to where we are now in Joshua, for those who may have uh, not been here uh, in the past few weeks, um, we are in the book of Joshua. And in the last chapter that we looked at last week, uh, the Israelites just entered the promised land um, through events that we could just say only God could do. Um, the walls of Jericho fell, and the people rushed in, and they took over the city, Victory was assured. Uh, enemy, the enemies were slaughtered. Not one drop of blood, not one drop of Israelite blood, I should say, was lost from God's people. And so now that they've taken over Jericho, it was time to expand their conquest into the other areas of this land that God had promised them. And so the next target in their crosshairs is, is the city of Ai. And as we heard in scripture reading, um, I wasn't a very well-armed, well-secured city. Um, the report back from the spies was that only a few men are there. But it was a very strategic city nonetheless because it was very centrally located. Uh, major roads from different cities would pass through I. So if the Israelites could control the small city, they could control who or what passed through uh, from city to city, uh, crossing through I to other parts of the land. And so as we begin this passage, we kind of find that the author 
uh, begins the chapter like uh, like these TV writers do uh, for some of these crime dramas. You know, sometimes you see these crime dramas on TV, and the first thing you'll see is you know the the perpetrator uh, committing the offense. Uh, we know who did the crime and how the crime was done, but you know the the police or the detectives spend the rest of the show trying to figure out what happened. And this is what's happening here. Joshua gives us some inside information. He tells us something up front that Joshua and the people have yet to find out. But as they would soon find out, what happened would have a great impact on on soon-to-be future events. And that's the first lesson I want to bring across from this passage, and that is individual sins can have corporate consequences. Individual sins can have corporate consequences. In the Pentateuch, we're introduced to this term. It's called hiram. Hiram. And hiram refers to devoted things. But when you hear the word, don't think of it of it being devoted in a good sense. These are things that God prescribed as being devoted to destruction, things to be consecrated to God by its elimination. Because these things are an offense to God, and because these things could compromise the relationship of the Israelites with God. So in chapter 6, when the Israelites are about to enter Jericho, Joshua commands the people in verses 17 and 18, the city and all that is in it are to be devoted, this term hirim, to the Lord. And they're devoted to the Lord once again by being destroyed. It says, only Rahab and all who are with her in the house shall be spared because she hid the spies um, that we sent. But keep away from the devoted things, the hirim, so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. So this was Joshua's command in chapter 6. But as we heard in the beginning of chapter 7, this command was not kept because Achan did not destroy some of the hirim. He kept some of the items for himself. And because of this, even though I may have been a very small, very poorly armed city, the Israelites were routed in battle. Whereas in Jericho, a much larger city, a much more well-fortified city, a city with a much larger military force, the Israelites were able to easily conquer. Not one drop of blood of their blood was shed. When they attacked the small town of Ai, the results were different. Israelites, were lo- Israelites' lives were lost. Um, the, the people of Ai just routed them. And when we hear about this, we may find all this a bit unsettling. You know, why did the rest of the Israelites suffer when only one person sinned? Achan disobeyed, but at least 36 men lost their lives. And to make it worse, the one who should have lost his life wasn't killed, or at least not now. You know, something just doesn't seem right. And the reason I think this may bother us is because we have a different worldview than that of God. The view we like to uphold is one much more of individualism. We prize our freedom and our liberty. We want to do whatever we please. If you remember, the, the big news on Thursday was what? Was the Supreme Court ruling on health care. And regardless of what you felt on the Supreme Court's decision, you know, there were strong opinions shared on both sides. And it seemed that one of the strongest arguments against those, or uh, one of the strongest arguments that those who were against the act um, 
raised was the sense of individualism. You know, the government shouldn't be able to tell me what to do. I should have the freedom whether to choose to buy health insurance or not. No one should be able to force me to do something that I don't want to do. And it was kind of funny. Um, afterwards, after the Supreme Court um, ruled the um, decision uh, legal, or the, ruled the act legal, um, all these, this news wire picked up the story how, how hundreds of people, if not thousands, across the nation started twittering. And they were twittering things like, you know, that's it. You know, I'm fed up with the U.S. I'm sick of these decisions. I'm against this decision. I'm moving to Canada. And the new, and the newswise correctly showed that, well, if they move to Canada, what does Canada have? Universal health insurance. So like, good luck with that. But anyway, this is individualism, right? No one should be able to tell me what to do. No one should be able to make me buy health insurance. This is, an individualistic worldview. But God doesn't see things this way. He has more of a corporate worldview. And we can trace this even back to the time of creation. When God created humans, he didn't just initially create an individual, but he, collective, he created collective humanity personified by an individual. In Genesis 5, uh, verses 1 and 2, it says this. It says, <clears throat> when God created man, he made them in the likeness of God. He created them, male and female, and blessed them. And when they were created, he called them man, or Adam in Hebrew. So did you get the contrast? In verse 1, God created man and made him this. But then God created man in verse 2 and made them this. So Adam wasn't just the name for the first person to be created. Adam was the first person created, but he represented all of humanity. And we also see this as it relates to sin. Because Adam, at the time, represented all of humanity, when he sinned, God counted all of humanity guilty. Paul explains this in Romans 5. In verses 13 to 14, Paul says this. He says, For before the law was given, sin indeed was in the world before the law, which is the Mosaic law that he's referring to. But sin is not taken into account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. This can seem kind of confusing, but basically what Paul is saying is that even though before Moses came, there was no law because the Mosaic law hadn't been given yet, there was still sin. And though their sins were not counted as infractions of the law because the law wasn't given yet, they still died and were counted guilty on the basis of Adam's sin. And, and to prove that this is correct, Paul even adds in verse 12, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sinned. And when he says because all sin, he's not just referring to the sins we commit today but he's referring to being guilty on account of Adam's sin. And then in the first part of verse 18 of Romans 5, he adds, the result of one, trans- of one trespass was the condemnation for all men. So we see in the Bible this corporate view where even though one person sinned for Adam, 
God counted all of humanity as being guilty because Adam at the time was the representative for the whole group, for all humanity. And so just as with the original sin, so here in our passage in Joshua, Achan was a representative for God's people, which was the Israelites. And so in verse 1 of our passage, instead of just saying Achan sinned, the author wrote, the Israelites acted unfaithfully. And when God addressed Joshua in verse 11, he didn't just say Achan sinned, he said Israel sinned. They violated the covenant. They have stolen. They have lied. So God counts, can count, an individual group, or a group guilty on the basis of an individual sin. And as Chuck mentioned when we started our series in Joshua, back in the Old Testament, the Israelites were seen as God's people. But in our time, God's people are now the body of believers or the church, local or universal. So can the implication be made that the sins of some individuals can have a negative impact on the church? I think in one obvious way, the answer is yes, you know, because we hear all these news stories of like priests or pastors abusing kids, leaders embezzling money from the church, leaders having extramarital affairs, and how all these things just kind of rip the church apart. So of course, all these things will impact the church in a negative way, just based on this one person's sins. But from Joshua 7, I think we could also infer that this can relate to much less prominent people. And sins even more hidden can have an impact. In ways we may not be able to know or be able to see, ministries can fail, effectiveness of ministries can be limited because of certain sins of members. I mean, it may be hard to specify which sins could result in this, but I think it's a possibility nonetheless. And this, to me, is is, is a pretty sobering thought because we can't have this attitude like, I can do whatever I want as long as it doesn't hurt anyone because we can't have that certainty that what we do will not hurt anyone. Maybe it will. Maybe it does have a consequence on the church. You know, Achan may have thought by taking these goods, you know, I'm just sinning against God, I'm not hurting anyone. But this passage shows that his his thinking was quite erroneous. And the corporate body was affected. And so once again, individual sins can have corporate consequences. And because God views sins so seriously, we also find that individual sins require collective judgment. You know, when Achan's sin is exposed, it's not that Achan is just punished. It says in verse 24 that Achan, the silver, the robe, the gold that he kept, but in addition, his sons and daughters, cattle, donkeys, and sheep, his tent, and all that he had were gathered together. And later verses tell us they were all destroyed. Because Achan kept some of the Hirim, now he and his family become Hirim. Excuse me. <laughs> Sorry about that. But once again, you know, this, this may be very troubling for us to hear. I mean, why was it that only Achan sinned, but his family and all his belongings had to suffer with it? And I think uh, Pastor Chuck may speak on this more in the future 
uh, message. But let me uh, try to make some comments about this today. Um, first, I would say that you know we can never fully grasp God's holiness and the extent to which sin is an offense to Him. You know, it's such an offense that ridding Israel of this stain of this one man's sin required the complete removal of everything associated with the guilty party. Achan's sin had affected the whole nation, and as with all Hurim back then, it required the complete destruction of everything connected with it. It required the complete removal of all these things associated with Achan for the people to get back into a right relationship with God. And second, I would add that if we were going to argue that it was unjust for the family to be punished for one person's sin, then to be consistent, we would also need to make the same argument when it worked in a positive way. And let me explain what I mean. So in Joshua, when we were looking at chapter 2 and chapter 6, I don't think any of us had a problem with the story of Rahab and her family. To refresh your memories, when Rahab hid the spies in chapter 2, she tells the spies, Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. And as we just heard in Joshua 6, when so when the Israelites came to take over Jericho, Joshua told them, destroy everything, but spare Rahab and everything in her household. And when we heard this story, I'm sure we all thought, yeah, this is fine. This is all good. But wouldn't it be inconsistent to say, on one hand, that it's fine for Rahab and all her family to be saved just because of the act of Rahab? Whereas it's not fine for Achan and his family to be punished just because of the act of Achan? I mean, none of us were saying, well, you know, it was just Rahab that hid the spies, so only Rahab should be saved. Her family didn't do anything for the spies. They were maybe off in their own home and in other places. So why should they be saved? I mean, I think we all thought, no, this is good. But how can we argue that Rahab and all her family should be, should be saved on the basis of what Rahab did. But it's not right for Achan and all the family to be destroyed just because of what Achan did. I mean, more so than for you to just, you know, just analyze this point and, 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 and mull over it and, and, and argue over it. You know, more so, the point I want to make is that God sees sin as such an offense that he could appropriately require such severe judgment in ways we don't understand or can't comprehend. This is how much of, you know, of an act of, of just rebellion against God sin is, that it requires such judgment and punishment. And this relates to the third point that I want to make, which is, as we bring this over into New Testament times, we see that individual sins required such severe judgment that it required Christ's punishment. And here is one case I'm sure we can all be grateful for God's corporate worldview. That though we are guilty of sin, God sent his son Jesus to come to this earth and live a perfect life and die on the cross. And this sacrifice, this sacrifice of one person 
would be sufficient to pay the price for all of our sins. And this is the heart of the gospel message, which I'm sure most of us are familiar with. You know, Paul puts it well in Romans 5 when he continues, but the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass, referring to Adam's sin once again, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? And he adds in verses 18 to 19, Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness, Christ coming down to earth and dying on the cross, how much was it, was it justification that brings life for all men? For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, many will be made righteous. So Christ came to take the judgment that should have been ours. And though we are unrighteous, because of this one righteous act, because of Jesus, we all can be counted as righteous. You know, if I went to someone and asked him or her, you know, would you want to believe in a God that whenever you did something wrong, God would kill you and kill your family as well? I think the person would say, no, there's no way I would want to believe in a God like that or want to trust through love a God like that. But what if I said, would you believe in a God that though you were worthy of punishment and death, he sent his son down to die for you and take the punishment for you? I think on the other hand, the person would say, yeah, I would definitely want to believe in that kind of God. But it gets a little trickier because what if these two scenarios I described were from the same God? Well, you'd probably be, hmm, I'm not so sure. And maybe there are questions that still linger in our mind about this. But I think God does these things to help us recognize the price that sin costs and the price that needed to be paid so that sinful humans can be reconciled to a holy, righteous God. And this is the price, the, the penalty that needed to be paid for our sins. And the fact that God did send Jesus down to die for us is one aspect, once again, of this corporate worldview that we can all be thankful for that our sins don't have to be counted against us because of the cross. But let me add one thing is that even though this is true, we can't use this as a license to do whatever we want. But rather we have to remember in Joshua 7 that sin is seriousness. Or sin is serious. And God treats it very seriously. And it can have consequences. I think one problem nowadays with Christians is that now that they have accepted Jesus into their lives. People think they can just be like what Whitey Bulger. I'm not sure if you guys keep up with the news, but you know Bulger was this, well, not was, he still is this notorious Boston mobster who was just found last summer, and he was arrested after being on the run for 16 years. He was in hide, living in hiding in California. And he's facing 19 counts of murder. But his attorney just this week, he argued that all charges should be thrown out because when Bulger served as an FBI informant, 
many years ago, he reached an agreement with the government promising, promising him immunity, not only from past offenses, but also all future crimes. So basically, he could do whatever he want and get away scot-free. Of course, the U.S. attorneys, you know, heard the defense attorney arguing this, and this, this is, they were like, this is ridiculous. There's no way we would give anyone, the government would give anyone immunity for future crimes and just say, you can just go out and kill anyone you want and you, you, and you would be immune from the law. There's no way this would, this would happen. And this is what's going to be argued when, when it comes to trial, like uh, next March, I believe, is, is when the case comes to trial. And, and not to such a serious degree, but some Christians think that, well, I know Jesus died on the cross, and I know Jesus has forgiven all my sins, so I can just live however I want. So all my sins are going to be forgiven. And Paul wants to show us the error of this thinking, which is why he, allo- he follows Romans 5 with Romans 6. He starts off Romans 6 by writing, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? And understand, when Paul writes that we died to sin, he's not saying that Christians are no longer capable of sinning or that we will not be tempted by sin. We know this because later in the chapter, he tells believers, Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you will obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness. He wouldn't be telling us these things if we were no longer able to be tempted by sin. But what he is saying is that when a person accepts Jesus into his, his or her life, a dramatic change in our relationship with sin should occur. So dramatic it should be like moving over from death to life. When he asks, how can we live in it any longer? It's a rhetorical question, implying we can't go on living with it in it any longer. We can't go on living the way we used to. This should not be our attitude. Later on in the chapter, he tells his readers, we should live not being enslaved to sin like we were in the past, but rather we should live being servants of God. So those who are in Christ should have a different MO than before they accepted Christ. So though sin may still be a struggle, we should not be characterized by it. And we should not have just a very um, complacent attitude about sin, thinking, you know, it's okay, because Christ died on the cross, and I'll be forgiven for anything that I do. And this leads to the last point, which is dealing with sin requires collective community. It requires collective community. In our passage, when it was time for the Israelites to deal with sin, you know, God instructed for all the people to assemble together. I mean, can, can you just imagine if you were one of these people how nerve-wracking it must have been for the people to all get up and assemble together, their tribes being called out one by one, then the clans, then the individual families, then the individual members of the families having to go up one by one. I mean, I'm sure, you know, people were probably looking at others, is it them, is it them? You know, individuals were like, man, I hope it's not me. And when they get up to the front and Joshua says, oh, you're okay, I'm sure they're like, you know, I'm glad I'm not... I'm not the one guilty. And, you know, let's understand, though, that this was done not to humiliate or embarrass the Israelites. More so, this was to show the community that sin was something that involved the whole corporate body, that affected the whole corporate body. And so they needed to help each other deal with it, to maintain a sense of uprightness and accountability within the group. 
I mean, we see similar examples like this in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul is telling the church about a brother who's committing incest. So Paul instructs the local body. He says, confront the sin. Deal with it. It's your responsibility to deal with it. In, verse, in, in chapter 5, he writes uh, to the Corinthians, Don't you know that a little, le- a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? So he's showing them, once again, that a little sin can affect the whole body. And then if you remember, when we were going through the seven churches in Revelations, when the angel is addressing several of the churches, he highlights sins within the church. And he tells the body, he's like, deal with it. Take care of it, or God's going to take care of you. So once again, you know, there's this community aspect that we all need to be involved to help each other deal with sin. And it's not that sin, you know, requires, or that sins requires groups to come together to cast lots and throw stones at offenders. Nor does sin necessarily, you know, require that the whole church or the whole congregation be involved. You know, smaller groups can suffice. But what it does is it does call us to consider how we can help each other deal with sins and help us in our struggle with sin. I mean, that's why we have groups like Real. That's why most of our small groups, we break up in the same-sex pods for prayer and sharing and to help keep each other accountable. I mean, I think this is an area, as a congregation, we can continue to discuss and think about and pray about ways we can improve to try to help each other deal with sin. You know, let's not treat sin lightly because as we saw in our passage, God does not treat sin lightly. It costs Achan and several others their lives. It costs God, his only son. And through the cross, we are told that we no longer have to be enslaved by the power of sin, but can be set free from sin. Let us be a community that tries to keep check, sin in check, but does so in a way that's not condemning or judgmental or critical. Rather, let us be redemptive communities where though at times we may have to exercise discipline and action, we do so in a graceful way because Jesus is described as being full of grace and truth. He didn't have to choose between the two. He didn't dial one down to play up the other. He treated grace and truth equally. And we need to do the same. Not to be afraid to address sin or error with truth, but to do so in a way that is grace-soaked. So once again, let's you know, treat sin with seriousness and importance. If there's sin in our lives, let's do what we can to, 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 to deal with it. And as a community, let's help, let's come together and form redemptive communities that can help each other in our struggle with sin. Let's pray. Father, I do just thank you for this passage, and even though it's just often a difficult one to hear and one that admittedly we sometimes find uncomfortable, what it does is create a picture of how seriously you treat sin and how seriously you view sin and what an offense it is to you. And so, Lord, let us not take sin lightly in our lives or in our church, but let us find redemptive ways to deal with it and be bodies of redemptive people who are full of grace and truth.
as we deal with sin. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Pastor David. Please rise with